This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I was sitting up in bed, propped against the pillows. I was working on a Sudoku book Leslie got me for Christmas. It's called Fiendish Sudoku. It seems to comfort her when I perform an act of Sudoku because she believes it will offset the onset of the dementia she seems to believe is my inevitable fate. To be fair, she hasn't said this explicitly, but she's very interested in activities which prolong the free and easy functioning of the brain well into old age, and she tells me all about them, but then she never does any of these things herself. It could be that she thinks more about my own well-being than her own. One time she said to me, well, it was more technically that she mused this aloud in my absolutely immediate vicinity. She said, if I lost my mind, if I could no longer think as I think now, if I lost the capacity to be a person as I understand it, I would want someone to kill me. There was something about this I felt to be pointed. Leslie has no interest in Sudoku because it is, I quote, a closed system with no engagement with contemporary reality, unquote. She said this, and I had one of those moments where I had so many questions and a lot of comments, but then I just let it go. It's also true that I didn't want to accidentally provoke an enthusiasm for Sudoku because she might propose that we work on them together, and I can't complete a fiendish Sudoku. I amuse myself by filling in the numbers I can, and then at some point, when I think Leslie might on some subconscious level detect the cessation of activity, I start to add them in at random. Every now and then I play it close to the edge, with a sudden flurry of activity, a kind of grand pileup of eurekas. One time when Leslie was in the bathroom or removing things and adding things and flossing and peeing, I completed an entire puzzle in two minutes, pretending I was a mad Sudoku genius. But this is an indulgence I limit, because what if Leslie mentions to someone, Oh, James loves Sudoku. He's really good at it. He's been tearing through fiendish Sudoku. Oh, you love it too? That's great. You two should exchange strategies. Oh, look, that's James with my drink coming this way now. Talk Sudoku, you guys. I feel like my time spent adding numbers at a thoughtful random into my Sudoku book counts as an exceptionally private moment. No one will ever know what I'm doing. Years and years and years from now, long after the Sudoku craze has come and gone, one of my kids will be rummaging through a stack of old books at a garage sale, because although I believe everything else about our contemporary world will pitch and slide away into the ocean of time, paper books, paper money, light bulbs, cage birds, drinkable tap water, I do believe that they will still be garage sales, and even leftover books, magazines, although maybe not the cardboard boxes we stash them in now, and I can picture Lucas or Lily rummaging through one of those stacks and coming across an old book of Sudoku puzzles, only half filled out, and something about it will hit them, and they'll pick it up and hold it, squinting at it for a moment, trying to understand why this is a special poignance for them. And then it will come to them, and they'll remember, and might even say to whatever companion they're with, Oh, you know, my dad used to love these. 
I remember when I was a kid, there would always be one of these books by his side of the bed. My love for Sudoku, a minor but resonant cornerstone of their childhood. A lie. Leslie stands in the corner of the bedroom door, her hair braided for the night, something she does which I find old world and secretly adore, and an expression of slightly awry alert in her eye. If she were a cat, one would draw her at this moment slightly cockeyed, tail a bit puffed, ears a bit back. You've been killing, I say, knowing it to be true. Five, she says. I killed five. One got away. She drifts just for a moment, just a foot or two into the room, still in the tiniest bit of a daze, and then she shakes something away, and her eyes snap fully into focus, and she gets into bed and arranges the covers around her. You know, at this point, I say, the ones we see are probably already on their way out. We're probably seeing them because they're already, you know, in distress, and that's why they're coming out and are easy to get. I can't stop killing, she says, and picks up her book. I resume my Sudoku. I allow myself a period of thoughtful inactivity. It is fiendish. These are great days in our household, my friends. Days of victory. But victory can be bittersweet. It was Leslie who first discovered the roaches during her insomniac rambles. I myself sleep through the night, every night, something she tries to be glad of, but actually regards on some profound level as a betrayal of our love and partnership. She pulled me aside during the post-breakfast preschool hullabaloo while Lucas was zooming randomly through the house, searching for his jacket and creating a series of extraordinary noises. We have roaches, she said in a low hiss. Instinctively, I looked around. Lily was sitting on the couch, absorbed in an illustrated book about glittery rainbow-winged fairy unicorn ponies with the power to transform their enemies into flowers. It's an older book, two reading levels below her own, and she has on more than one occasion pronounced a completely dorky ascent of an Iaco, privately, but she reads it all the time. I immediately felt, as Leslie did, that the children should be protected from all dark knowledge, and I lowered my voice in turn. Are you sure? I asked. Maybe it was a water bug. Those just wander in sometimes. She gave me a withering look, and she was right to do so. It had never occurred to me that you could have roaches in L.A. I know that's ignorant. There's that merry little cucaracha song, which implies that they're also a southern phenomenon, and Los Angeles is a large city full of humans, but I associate roaches so specifically with New York City, with long gray winters, with negligent landlords, insane neighbors, and very old buildings full of cracks, crevices, ancient debris suspended between the walls, festering forever. In fact, it was a long experience of New York roaches that I initially reached for for comfort. This doesn't need to be any kind of disaster. We're old New York City hands. I know what to do. And then I realized I don't. Here's what I know about getting rid of roaches. You call your landlord. He doesn't return your call. You call again, allowing indignation to seep into the edges of your cordiality. Many calls later... And only after you have actually lost your cool, which is the coin for which one pays the ferryman in NYC before he will row you to the other side of whatever good or service it is that you require, a man will show up at your door, unexpectedly. You have never seen him before. Nothing about his appearance is reassuring. He carries a thick, dented canister attached to a sinister-looking nozzle. You allow him into your apartment. 
Many imperceptibly tiny screams later, or so you surmise, your apartment is roach-free for about a month and a half. And then the whole cycle begins again. You don't even really notice. You're 26, broke, distracted, intoxicated with life, all but suicidal. Roaches are the least of it. What do I know about roach control in Los Angeles in a freestanding house in the sunshine, surrounded by wife, children, grass, birds, air? I strongly suspect, and Leslie confirms, that the metal canister is off the table. She rummages madly through the internets and comes away with esoteric, all-natural, anti-roach knowledge. Roaches absolutely hate cucumber, for example. There is something about the elemental freshness and purity of a cucumber which revolts them on a fundamental level. Demons recoil from holy water, roaches from cucumber, and garlic, and tea tree, and red pepper. And so at night, after the children have gone to bed, Leslie confidently distributes small piles of vegetal bob material about the kitchen in any suspect area. She carefully sponges the countertop with white vinegar. She has the glowing hum of a person who is besting both an infestation of devils and Dow Chemical. Then for a period of weeks, for whatever freakish and unrelated reason it happens sometimes, Leslie sleeps through the night, every night. She keeps up her anti-roach routine, which the children have finally detected, and wondered about aloud, to which Leslie responded in a bright and confident tone of voice, Oh, it's hygiene! Indulging in one of those vaguely shameful parenting moments when you use knowledge to obfuscate rather than reveal. Doing it in such a way that your child can only assume that you are attempting to educate and can only assume that any inability to comprehend is their own. And we are all very sure that it is working and that we are now all but roach-free. Until one afternoon, a weekend, when in broad daylight I pull the pasta canister away from the wall and a small cluster of lively roaches bounces off the side of it and darts up the wall and behind the cupboard. I shout out, kind of a hoarse cry. Leslie claims delicately that I shriek like a bitch, but she's indulging in color at the expense of sense. Still, the sound I create vocally brings the whole family into the kitchen. Oh, I say, seeing their wide eyes. Sorry about that. I was startled. By what? Lucas cries, not unreasonably, his eyes darting about. By a clown, I say. I saw a clown. Obviously, this is a really, really idiotic lie. And Leslie has serious questions about it later when we're alone. When she says, how could you say something that idiotic? It's not a rhetorical question. She genuinely wants to know. Probably brooding about my dementia, onsetting itself years before even her pessimistic predictions. Because she says, and again, what makes it so painful is that it's a real inquiry. You make stuff up all the time for a living. And it's true, generally my work is scripted, but I've made it my business to keep a hand in the kinds of projects, webcasts and evenings, places and such, which involve demi-improvisation and quips, quick thinking. I pride myself on my mental alertness. In certain quarters, I'm known for it. But, you know, it's the weekend. I'm not at work. My brain is, as it were, hung up to air out and dry. The children don't have a phobia about clowns, because like most children of their generation, along with peanut cookies at birthday parties, they've never been exposed to a real one. Clowns are a colorful figure in the picture books they read when they were smaller. 
By the time I managed to describe how it was that the clown was startling without being in any way menacing, not crouching in the backyard or surprised in the act of climbing over the fence, I almost describe him as bouncing briefly into view from a trampoline in the yard next door, but settle felicitously on a brief appearance on a balcony, I can see them reaching the very adult conclusion that their father has overreacted. It touches my pride. The walls, little children, I want to scream. The walls! I want to raise a sledgehammer to the plaster, breaking it apart, revealing the thick, glossy, shifting, scurrying layer of life, horrible, horrible life flickering and pulsing beneath the surface. I wake up that night at 3 a.m., pretty much on the dot. I look over and Leslie is fast asleep, snoring lightly. I blink a few times. Sleep has fallen away from me entirely. I creep down the hallway, treading ever so lightly. At the bathroom door, I stop, reach in, and break off a small wedge of toilet paper, which I clutch boiled up in my fist. As I near the kitchen, I'm literally on my toes, like a very, very sneaky ballerina. I pause, wait, listen. I'm ready. I'm ready. In one perhaps excessively dramatic movement, I simultaneously flick on the kitchen switch and leap into the room. <sighs> My first thought is to be startled by the normalcy of the scene. I had come to imagine that the night in our kitchen was an orgy of roaches. I'd pictured a party atmosphere, possibly dancing, tiny black eyes blinking from every surface. Instead, everything is as it should be, as I left it when we headed off to bed. All is safe and clean and sane. No, a shimmer in the air over there. I lunge forward as something whisks onto the toaster. I grasp the toaster and hoist it over my head, but I'm too late and only just glimpse some number of legs diving into the dark and shadowy partition between the counter and the stove. I turn breathless, eyes darting about. Oh my God, that's a big one. Absolutely motionless on the faucet, an adult male, a bull cockroach. Experienced enough not to move a hair until the last possible second when it all but jets for the crack between the countertop and the sink itself and would have made it if I hadn't wrenched my shoulder with a kind of heroic reach I haven't used since Little League and squashed it as it fled. I turn with my eye readjusted, find two more sidling away on opposite countertops. I pick the one, squish it, and by the time I turn again, the other is gone. I stand in the center of the room, my gaze twitching, panting, and then stride to the counter, where I begin pulling at appliances, canisters, trivets, sparking a new surge of flight, pursuit, squashing, four, five, six, I'm getting most of them, a few are making it away. On impulse, I lift up the drain board and find a horrible bonanza. Ten, twelve, and an egg case. Mash, 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 mash. I'm not fast enough and my Kleenex wad is much used. I would like to refresh it, but there's no time. One escapes into the dishwasher. The dishwasher! That sacred chamber of cleanliness. And I fling it open and the fugitive is gone. But two of them are mating right on the rubber liner. Their distraction makes them effortless to kill, but they ooze into my fingers. I fling the gory Kleenex into the garbage can and turn the tap on with the butt end of my hands and run hot water, dish soap, hot water over my fingers until they are almost scalded. I must have seen something, something I didn't quite register. Or why else would it occur to me to lift from the wall the watercolor of indifferent quality but much sentimental value by Leslie's grandmother, that sweet lake scene, the back of it alive with roaches?
mostly medium-sized ones, who swarm all about the frame and onto my fingers, yes, onto my fingers, while I master myself sufficiently to not drop the frame, shatter the glass, and to not scream, girl! Although I do quite under my breath under a series of ah, 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 until I can lower it into the sink, and there is not time to grab the paper towel I squish while I can with my thumb. Some escape into the drain, others back into the crevices of the frame. Finally, when that burst of excitement is over and I have tapped it a bit, I can do nothing other than replace the painting on the wall with its secret burden intact. Again with the hand-washing. I'm something not unlike Lady Macbeth. There's a little one, hiding behind the marble backsplash behind the sink. It's a young one, barely an adolescent, so it is not strong with cunning. And though its body is concealed, its antennae still peek above the surface, quivering. I can imagine it panting breathlessly, thinking, Oh goodness, I'm safe, I'm safe. There is something pliant and sensitive looking about the little ones. Something fragile and dear. You are, darling, I say to it. But still, you will die. In sliding a knife into the gap, I flick it up onto the counter and smash it with the blade. Which I place in the dishwasher, which we cleared before bedtime. One drinking glass, the knife, a water shortage. I fill the container with soap, turn the dial to heavy cycle, and hit on. The kitchen is filled with the sounds of churning. My heart is still beating rapidly. I'm no Buddhist, but it's strange to kill something whose only real crime is being part of a larger whole. I feel dark, soiled, ashamed, triumphant, helpless. We order boric acid over the internet. This is the last step before the canisters, and the internet is completely divided on is it effective or no, but a few days later, they begin to emerge from the wall, staggering and swearing, their inside shriveled, painfully dehydrated, all but savage with desire for whatever it is they think will stop the burning, cool their longing, answer the need for they have no idea even for what, but which is for more life, for the damage to be healed, their sins to be erased, for the doom clock in their bellies to cease its hideous, continual, increasing ticking. The doom clock in their bellies does not cease. The ticking increases. Their sins are not erased. They have each one of them at best days to live. We find them on the counter, in the daylight. They are sluggish to get away. They are unable to get away. These deaths are probably merciful. All around us, in the walls, are thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of concealed deaths. Great caverns, formerly pulsing with life, are still eerie repositories of tiny decay. We can't at this stage hide them from the children. My son says, Dad, Dad, look what I found. I come into the kitchen and Lucas is staring at a medium roach, slowly pulling its way across the floor. It's a roach, Dad, he says. I don't ask him where he got that knowledge. No, Lucas, I tell him. That's just a water bug. They live outdoors normally. 
This guy must have wandered in by mistake. Oh, he says. And we watch it for a moment, in silence. What do we do, he asks. Do we kill it? Or do we protect it? It's a genuine question. I do, it seems at the moment, like the right thing. It's a water bug, I say. We protect it. Why don't you find a scrap of paper and we'll take it back outdoors where it belongs? He goes and finds a scrap of paper. He doesn't ask me to speak more in how we know we're making right choices. He might be distracted. He might be incurious. Or he might detect with that hypersensitive child radar whose existence I half and fearfully believe in that it is no use asking me these questions because not only will I not tell him, I don't even know. We open the screen door and after carefully scanning the yard, Lucas picks a patch of sunlight right near the hydrangea bush we've never quite had the heart to remove and gently shakes the roach free. It stumbles about on the grass a bit and moves unsteadily towards the shade. Lucas's heart is touched. You're free, he tells it. What is this outdoor world to it? The verdure, sunlight, sky, birds, low rumbles of air traffic, a radio. This could be a paradise it might never have known, a glimpse of life as it never knew it could be. Or it might be a horror show, scalding light, weird odors, loneliness. What it would be if you dragged me from my warm bed, the arms of my wife, the kids down the hall, and poison me and thrust me into the unfinished part of the basement to die. Getting On with James Urbaniak, Episode 18, The Visitors, was written by Anne Washburn and produced and performed by James Urbaniak. This program is part of the Feral Audio Network. Visit feralaudio.com for prior episodes and other podcasts. <laughs>